You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 50. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelen Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey son, hey son, 50! 50! Can you believe that? <laughs> Big five-o! Big five-o! Exciting times, guys! Um, do you know what else is really exciting? Well, what, what? what I what? am excited about. I know it's not until September 22nd, 2017, but I'm very excited about the next European Skeptics Congress. Yay. Uh, oh, yeah. That, that is going to happen uh, in Wroclaw, Poland. Um, there's a 17th biannual European Skeptics Congress. Um, so, yeah, in yeah. fact, our podcast started on the 16th. European yeah. Skeptics Congress, or after, yeah, after that, not, yeah. not on, yeah, <laughs> in London. Uh, now, the reason why I'm mentioning it now is because, as many of our listeners know, and as you guys know, they have confirmed amazing Randy is a speaker, and I just cannot believe how amazing th- this is. Yeah, indeed. isn't that amazing? Jim, yeah. James Randy. <laughs> I mean, Yay. to be honest, the list of speakers they already confirmed is just incredible yeah it is. um and james randy was just cherry on top <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so uh our susan gerbic is going to be there from uh, gso gorilla skepticism on wikipedia uh project sanala damaruku who we had an interview with he is an indian uh, born skeptic activist massimo polidoro will be there yeah in fact all all those three people no four all of them were on our podcast How wonderful mm. is that? Yeah, yeah. Not Susan Blackmore, though. I haven't mentioned Susan Blackmore because she is in negotiations. Yeah, but still, how how yeah. good would that be? To That'd have her be amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, wow. In any case, if any of you want to find out more about it, uh, they've got a website that's up and running, euroskepticscon.org. And there is a lot of information about the Congress itself, about all the speakers. Uh, the venue, uh, when the registration is going to be open, etc. So, yeah, it's happening, guys. And um, I am hoping to be there, yeah. for sure. I mean... We all are. Can't miss it. As soon as we saw Randy confirmed speaker, I, I don't see how we can't... Like, we have to, because Ra- Randy's a... Like a, he's a star. He's like a pop star of skepticism mm. or rock star. No, I should yeah. say rock star, probably. Yeah. yeah if if i cannot afford it i'm gonna hitchhike i'm gonna hitchhike just walk there or something <laughs> i i don't care nah. i yeah and it's early days yet there will be it's much easy. more speakers announced yeah fantastic and i just want to say that for those who live in england the flights are very cheap i have checked yeah mm. good for you the, i think you can <laughs> get the flight for like 50 quid return Oh, good. Yeah, so it's great. Uh, the only thing is that uh, around that area, uh, the public transport, as I understand, is not perfect, to say the least. No. But come on, even if we fly into major cities around there, there are lots of major cities around there. If you can rent a car and and drive there, it's absolutely fine. It's normal. There are direct flights to Wroclaw from, uh, from London, definitely. Yeah, 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 but not necessarily from other countries. Uh, yeah, but uh, for example, with the Hungarian Skeptic Society, um, Gabor, who's who's also the chairman of EXO, and 
he will probably be there as well. He just mentioned on the the um, Facebook page of the Skeptic Society that uh, we might even organize a bus. Sure. For everyone who wants to go. <laughs> for, from from Hungary. From Hungary, yeah. So All it's, right. It's like. How cool so, would that be? <laughs> so you heard it here first. If you can't find a good flight to Wroclaw, you find a you find a flight to Budapest and then take the bus. Yeah, that, yeah, you can great. take the bus with the Hungarian skeptics. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I might oh. do it myself, actually, <laughs> uh, and not not find my own way there. Yeah. Well, yeah. So this is all exciting. It's all exciting news. Uh, really looking forward to that. And uh, there are. Lots of other things to to look forward to. Before we move on, I'd like to say something about the last episode where I made a terrible mistake. Ooh, really? Um, do you remember us talking about the new Concorde or that that plane that is? I thought it was the... a little bit quick. Uh, it was I... too quick. Yeah. So the Concorde it accomplished the distance between uh, London and New York in uh, three and a half hours. Ah. That was the average. That's about the time that that this uh, newly planned plane will take to do the same distance. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry about the misleading the misleading information. I just I just said it off off the top of my head. Uh, but in my defense, the link that I provided on the show notes, I don't know how many of our listeners uh, actually regularly check out our show notes, but um, it did actually use the proper information. So mm-hmm. That's yeah. a lesson for you. Don't take anything we say seriously. Follow the links. <laughs> Follow the yeah. links. So always check out our show notes uh, because there is the proper information. Yeah. And uh, that actually is the case with uh, whatever we say about the events, the upcoming events as well. The best way to find out what's going on in Europe is to check out our calendar, which is also on the website. Yeah. So, uh, shall we talk about the events that are coming up next week? (laughs) Let's do that. Let's do this, guys. All right. Let's jump right in. I'm going to kick it off with 28th of November, Monday, as usual. And there will be a Skeptics in the Pub meeting in Germany, Munich. If you're around and following their work, you should be there or be square. No, don't be square. (laughs) And then (laughs) on the same day in Sheffield, back in UK, uh, our uh, friend David Alnwick will be showing his Mind Wizard uh, show. Um, he's doing a tour of UK, actually, so you probably have heard us mentioning him a few times. That's why. He's just uh, on the way to around UK in 80 days or less. In York, on the same day, 28th of November, there will be a talk in Skeptics in the Pub uh, with Stephen Colgan. And he'll be talking about how Mr. Green and Mr. Grey won't be visiting today. For those who doesn't know what that saying means, apparently it's about aliens visiting us or not visiting, which might be the case. Mr. Green and Mr. Grey. Hmm, nice. Talking about aliens, on the next day, uh, Luigi Carlaschelli in Italy, that's on Tuesday the 29th, by the way, uh, will be talking about disturbing mysteries from Frankenstein to the zombies. And it's happening in Cesena, which is um, in Italy, um, in northern Italy, not not far, 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 far up north. It's uh, in Emilia-Romagna. By the way, Luigi Garlaschelli 
he's a very interesting guy. He's a, he's a chemist and an active member of Cheekup. And uh, I don't know if you've heard about that, but uh, he was the one who r- reproduced the miracle of the blood of San Gennaro, who's the patron saint of uh, Naples. And uh, he uh, made a copy of the Shroud of Turin as well, a full-size copy. Uh, and on the same day, Köln, Cologne, um, in uh, Germany, will host a Skeptics in the Pub meeting as well with uh, Michael Kunko of the end of the world and other catastrophes that did not happen. Astrologists, fortune tellers and clairvoyants tested. This is a talk about uh, what group is doing. A lot of tests and uh, a lot of investigations are going on uh, with the German Skeptics. On the same day, Cambridge will host a talk as well, Cambridge Skeptics in the Pub. Emily Sandani will talk about why French prostitution policies have changed. An interesting, interesting choice of topic for Skeptics in the Pub. And uh, Cheltenham will host a Skeptics in the Pub meeting as well. Compare what happened when we tried to correct the record on 58 misreported trials. And the talk will be given by Henry Drysdale. On Wednesday the 30th, uh, the Rhein-Main skeptics in Germany will have a regular meeting. I, I don't know what they're doing with the irregular meetings, but we don't know much about it, but it's probably fun. Then we have in Stoke, Kat Arney will have her talk called What's Inside Your Genes. Uh, High Wickham will have a open mic night. And in Oxford, uh, they will talk about insects. How insects might soon become the new normal with Jenny Josephs. That's all on Wednesday. Mm, And on Thursday, uh, Spotorno in uh, Italy again. Uh, That's far north um, in Italy. Perceptions, Mental Illusions and Deceptions is the title of the talk. It's one of a series of talks. And then... Madrid will host a talk. Why do I have to vaccinate? That's an important and very interesting topic that uh, holds the attention of a lot of people around the world these days. And uh, also on the same day, Liverpool Skeptics will host the Merseyside Skeptics board meeting as usual. That's open to the public as well, but obviously that's probably not that interesting for for all of the outsiders. But what follows after that is a Skeptics in the Pub social. That is probably much more interesting for everyone. Uh, So go along if you're around the area. And that's not all for the 1st of December. There's more to come. Uh, Brighton Skeptics in the Pub will have a talk with Nick House. And uh, uh, it's about robots. I, for one, welcome our new robot overlords. And then there is another one, uh, Skeptics in the Pub in Portsmouth. With seasonal skeptical cabaret evening. John appears and friends. Very festive. Last but not least, Skeptics in the Pub in Glasgow with Alan Cameron, a skeptic's defense of religion. Ooh, hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you defend it? All right. Then we move over to Friday, the 2nd of December, uh, where in Netherlands, the Delft skeptics have their monthly social meeting. In Teesside uh, in uh, the UK, you have How to Be a Psychic Conman with Ash Price. We've talked about that before. 
And in Barnsley, there is the Winterval. Uh, it's a social skeptics in the pub celebrating the season, I believe. Mm. And on Saturday, uh, the first talk of a series of talks in Bari, in the southern part of uh, Italy, uh, will take place. And uh, this one is about possessions and exorcisms between mystery and pseudoscience. And the speaker will be Armando De Vincentis, a psychotherapist, and Anna Rita Longo, a philologist. And also on Saturday, I will go to Stockholm to uh, attend uh, Skeptics in the Pub, among other things. And uh, Louise Hansare will talk about search dogs that have gone astray. I saw her here in Malmö a couple of weeks ago, and... Uh, and I will make sure that I have a short interview with her so that we can play on a, on a future uh, episode. Sounds good. And I will round up this busy week of Skeptic events with Edinburgh uh, Skeptics Underground. The talk they will have will be about exploring vegetarianism. So there we go. That's all for you, kids. <laughs> this has been all. It's quite a lot of events. How many events did we have? Is it 20-odd? I make it 23 or so. 23, that's that's crazy. That's and a nice round number, isn't it, guys? Yeah. It's more than three per day. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and it's probably not all that are happening across Europe. It's just all, all we know of. So if uh, if you want us to, to, to talk about more of these events or your event that has probably not made it to the list, please let us know what you're organizing and what you're hosting. You can email us. Our email address is info at theesp.eu. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at espodcast underscore eu. Um, you can follow us on Facebook. Please do. Or you can go on our website, which is theesp.eu, uh, complete a contact form and get in touch that way. Also, uh, if you are on iTunes, please leave us a review. That will help us spread the word. And thanks very much for listening. Exactly. Thank you very much. And I think this is the time that we are going to have to move on. And uh, we have a lot to share with you, dear listeners. I think we'll start with uh, a couple of short interviews because we still have those uh, recorded at QED. I hope you liked it. And uh, let's jump right into those ones. So we're here at the last day of QED. Everybody's saying goodbye to everybody and promising to keep in touch. And we will, of course, all over the place. I'm here with Bruno van der Castele uh, from Belgium. And uh, so, so how have you uh, found QED? This is my first QED, actually. I'm a bit ashamed to say that. And I found QED, uh, I participated in the World Skeptics Congress, Euro European Skeptics Congress. And all people kept saying, I saw it on my Facebook feeds, QED is fantastic, QED is fantastic. So I tried it, and yes, I don't regret it. I regret not having participated in the previous yeah, ones. Uh, you've been an activist or skeptical activist for many, many years, so it's strange that we haven't seen you here before. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but now you know better. Now, now I know better, and I will have to come next year too, yeah. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit of what it is you're doing. You have, uh, you at least have been, a, a very uh, prolific blogger. 
Um, I'm still blogging at the Skeptoid blog, so the Skeptoid podcast yeah. from Brian Dunning is also a, on the website, a, yeah. a small blog, a sort of community project. Mm -hmm. And I used to blog every week and then every two weeks and then there's holidays and I try to post something sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> okay, very good, very good. So, so uh, but I also understand that you do local things yeah. uh, in Belgium. I, sorry, wh where are you from? What, what's the city? What the what's the town? Uh, it's, it's a town of Beauvechain. Uh, well, I couldn't pronounce that. That's why I asked. No. Yeah. It has a military uh, airport, so okay. maybe known for for aficionados, but uh, all right. But you have something called the science salon, or yeah. whatever. How do you pronounce it? Well, it's it is in French, so it's a salon des sciences. Yeah. But it's indeed a science salon, and uh, it's something my wife and myself started because say there is something missing here around us. We, we wanted to do it very local, not like QED, which sort of international appeal, but something very local and, and talk to people we know or people from the neighborhoods and say this is science and science is fun and you can really it's hands-on you can experience science yourselves we aim for the kids because of course kids they they are still have that sense of curiosity and they have to bring their parents anyway have, yeah bring the parents <laughs> and grandparents and then we, we talk to the parents and the grandparents okay so we, we talk about the different uh, topics of science that are around like physics chemistry astronomy etc and i i also also always oh, it's second year now but we have also a, a stand for that that is for uh, especially for skepticism so a couple of friends um, from the Comité Para in Belgium and skeptics in the pub Brussels and the Observatie d'Ethique, uh, the Belgian part, who come and, and help me out and it's really a great, great uh, help. Mm -hmm. They talk to pe they, they they challenge people on their their beliefs and say, okay, you're sure homeopathy, you're sure this works. Uh, they do some pendulum, they do some magic tricks, they do cold reading, and then they have to spend half an hour convincing people they're not psychic because the cold reading works really well. <laughs> yes, so, so they, they almost prove them the opposite point because it works too well. <laughs> yeah, it works too well. So. All right, very okay. good. So this is a one-day event? Or it's, a, it? yeah, it's an afternoon, uh, in the evening is an astronomy observation, but that's already uh, quite enough to organize uh, with Ab two or absolutely. three persons. Yes. I have, a, I have a question actually, I don't know if you, you can help oh, or you're the audience. Oh, you're interviewing can, me now. Yeah, yeah. the audience right. can help. Yes. Um, I, I, uh, you know, if you, if you do a science fair and you say, okay, I've, I have astronomy, I put up planets, people will come and see. If you do chemistry, you do things that do woof or woof, and people will come see and, and say, ooh, what is this, what is this, Let, uh, I want to know more. We were thinking uh, with, with the, the skeptical friends to say, what can we do for skepticism that's, uh, that really is like that chemistry poof, that, that attracts people? So. I don't know. I came to QED with that que with that question in mind. I have a couple of ideas, like the the free homeopathic wine. I'm going to put in. Uh, that's a, a good. That's a great idea. I'm yeah. going to post it. But any other other ideas? I'm 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 of course very interested. Eh? Mm. Needs to be oriented to in, to children. So a mass suicide, probably not a good idea. This is a very a, a good uh, uh, activism. But uh, that's probably not the best idea. Yeah. Yeah. So if people have ideas for this, or even want to do that the same thing in other countries uh, where can they find you so i have a website for those but it's only in french it's a salon des sciences.be mm -hmm. and people can always contact me either to that website or just mail me directly at uh, bruno vdc in one word at gmail.com mm -hmm. and i'm happy to share ideas uh, actually, this QED is, is fantastic for that. I, I spoke to Andreas, who is the organizer of Dankfest. I just spoke about what I do. He said, oh, that's interesting. Can you send me some more? Or maybe you want to come. So that's, that's really the value of these skeptical events. You share information and you get invites to do your stuff somewhere else also. Yeah, this is what we're all about, to, to inspire each other, to exchange ideas, to help each other out. 
I, I think that illustrates what the what QED is about and also this podcast. So very good to talk to you, Bruno, and uh, see you again next year. I hope. Yes. All right. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, I've been roaming around uh, QED and the, the venue of QED for uh, for the whole weekend, and uh, now I met two guys from uh, from yet another uh, foreign country, which is, I believe, Finland, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're from Finland. Yeah, my name is Erno, and here's my friend Tommy. Good to, good to see you. Uh, what brings you to QED? Well, mostly the podcasting track, because... There's a lot of interesting people there, like uh, skating 80s crew and uh, cognitive dissonance guys, and uh, of course skeptics with a K. Uh, do you listen to many uh, English-speaking podcasts? Yeah, yeah. We well, I I actively listen to three: uh, cognitive dissonance, uh, uh, skating 80s, and um, be reasonable. So is this how you actually knew about QED at all, uh, in in the first place? Yeah, skeptics with a K. They always promote it <laughs> thoroughly. So, yes, that's. I assume this is not your first time to attend QED. Actually, this is our first time. Uh, we we were thinking about two years ago, a year ago maybe. Yeah, we should go, and the tickets were sold out. So. Maybe sometime later, and yeah. this year it actually actualized. <laughs> yeah, we we got the tickets and made travel plans and came here. Be careful, guys! This is the first step towards being an activist. <laughs> to make the first step to attend the conference like this. But, but that what would require me to be active if I was an activist. <laughs> yeah, well, the speakers on the main track inspired a little bit they had so uh, inspiring stuff to say especially the uh, ga- after the gala the price uh, what's it called the Occam's Razor yeah Occam's Razor it's the Occam's Award yeah yeah Occam's Award so that that really inspired me looking at the people there the uh, blog that was I think it was, sorry, no, the podcast with the, the drugs podcast that's only been like few months in, and they already won a war. So it's it's good to see that there are a lot of interested people, and it's very active, and uh, people find new podcasts that easy these days. Have you ever heard about uh, one of the podcasts that? Uh, We're among the shortlisted ones, uh, the European Skeptics Podcast, the ESP. Nope, we hadn't heard about it before that gala. No, no. Yeah. Well, I do recommend it. <laughs> I do recommend you check it out. Uh, um, well, if you don't like it, don't don't have to listen to it uh, for for too long. But uh, I hope you like it when you when you try it. Where where can we uh, find it? it, it is, is it, it your own site? Yes, oh. Stitcher or. It's on Stitcher, it's on iTunes, it's the European Skeptics Podcast, and uh, okay. you can find it online, theesp.eu is the, the URL. Okay. Well, um, not, not too much uh, left to go this afternoon, but uh, I'm very happy to have met you here, and uh, I wish you a wonderful uh, Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye.
QED, QED, QED. Even though we are all planning to go to the European Skeptics Congress as well, if QED happens next autumn again, I'm pretty sure we're going to be there as well. Are we sure going to try? I yes. will absolutely 99% certain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you go as far as to promise that if there is a podcast track again, we're going to apply for a slot? I'm up for it. Well, so how did it work this year, Andres? I think you had to apply. I think you had to had to actually indicate your intention to offer uh, one show. All right, okay. So if that that will be the case next year, uh, mm-hmm. are we going to mm-hmm. do it? Yeah. I'm. Yes. Yes. Great. So, dear listeners, that's a promise. But now, uh, not to talk about promises, but uh, talk about an exceptional journey from being a believer uh, to being a skeptic. I think it's time to listen to our interview with Brit Hermes. On every other episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. Today, our guest is Brit Hermes, former naturopathic doctor turned skeptic who's a major whistleblower on the field of naturopathy and the author of the blog Naturopathic Diaries, for which she recently received the 2016 Occam's Award in Manchester. Having had three years of experience as a naturopath, her blog provides an important insight to the wrongdoings of naturopathy and how an anti-science attitude infiltrates medicine. She currently lives in Germany and, along with being an activist, now studying biomedical science at the University of Kiel. Brit Hermes, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, let me start with congratulating you on the Occam's Award, which was very nice to see you uh, receive and uh, you gave a very nice uh, uh, acceptance speech as well it was well deserved definitely thank you (laughs) thank you it was it was quite an honor to be acknowledged by the the skeptical community and in such a beautiful and welcoming venue like qed yeah you said um, before we started recording that uh you are now hooked, as we all are, I think. Yes. <laughs> I had a fabulous time. I mean, from an educational perspective, I learned a ton. But QED was also just full of entertainment. And people who are truly, you know, dedicated to providing information in a really palatable and enjoyable way. And it, the experience is, is just intoxicating. And I'm totally addicted to QED now. <laughs> Excellent. So... We'll, we'll definitely be looking forward to seeing it at another one, maybe next year or year after year, year after, after year. Yeah. Or uh, we can we can even meet at the next year's uh, European Skeptics Congress. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's going to be uh, before. Which happens not very far from you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, in 2017. So at least two occasions. But you did mention uh, the welcoming atmosphere how do you find the reactions of the skeptic movement to your story because it's not an easy one to come to um, a community from um, so to say the other side do you feel welcome do you feel um, a positive attitude towards you i do i do you know it's interesting it's an interesting question so i was listening to cara santa maria's description of qed on her podcast, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and she described QED as a, sort of an overwhelmingly positive, welcoming 
atmosphere. And she said it was, you know, definitely on that end of the spectrum. And I absolutely agreed with her, but it got me thinking that perhaps not all corners of the skeptic community are as welcoming. I have had the experience of just being welcomed with open arms and it's been surprising and encouraging and interesting for me because as a naturopath, you know, as someone who was making a living off of um, accidentally misleading people in science and medicine, I was terrified of the skeptic community and would have never in a million years, you know, thought that I would at some point be part of the community. And even when I started writing my blog, I wasn't, I didn't consider myself a skeptic. I wasn't trying really to become part of the skeptic movement or the skeptic community. It was something that just happened accidentally. And I found myself, I guess I want to say relying, but that's not quite the right word, but I found myself just being really grateful for the skeptic community very quickly in my blogging career because I realized that these were the people who would be willing to stand up for me and to come to my defense against people who were attacking me online and um, you know trying to engage in character assassination against me. You know, time and time again, it was the skeptics and the scientists and the medical doctors that are part of the skeptic community that would help me back up my statements and also come to come to my defense. So it's been an incredible experience for me and I'm really grateful that the skeptic community existed because now in hindsight, I realize that I don't think I could have done what I've done, meaning I don't think I could have continued to critically write about my personal experiences in naturopathy and also just the, the, the alternative medicine community as a whole without the skeptic community being there to support me along the way. Um, can we just back up a little bit and um, for our listeners and actually for, for my personal benefit, will you tell us uh, what constitutes naturopathy, how you'd describe it? Naturopathy is a, it's an interesting field of alternative medicine that basically draws from anything alternative that you can imagine and it sticks it all together in a pile and is called naturopathy. So it includes aspects of traditional Chinese medicine, like Chinese herbal medicine and acupuncture. It includes Ayurvedic medicine, which comes from India. It includes herbal medicine, homeopathy, other types of energy medicine, like the laying on of hands. And it can also be used to describe alternative lifestyle choices like eating only organic foods and believing GMOs will make you sick, believing that vaccines cause autism or part of some giant conspiracy by the government to brainwash people, and and a desire to avoid anything that is rooted in conventional medicine, like pharmaceutical drugs. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so uh, it's pretty large field kind of I almost want to say all things woo (laughs) and uh, I didn't actually do enough research into into naturopathy to know what that is so it's good to have that better understanding in it Um, what was the origin of your interest in naturopathy originally well I started out um, well I was a teenager and I had a bad experience with a doctor 
And this is a pretty universal experience, I think, of people who end up going into alternative medicine, either as a health practitioner themselves or just as a sort of natural health crusader. You know, at some point or another, someone is probably going to have a bad experience with a doctor. And it's the response to that bad experience of, you know, so my response was, well, screw this. I'm, you know, medical doctors don't know anything. And if you're going to, you know, not be very nice to me when I ask you questions about other things that I think might be related to my health, then I'm not going to, I'm going to write the conventional medicine, medical community off altogether. So that's what I did. And I, I made the decision to not see a doctor unless I was, you know, unless it was an absolute emergency, unless I absolutely had to go to the emergency room or something. And as a result, I, I had to start looking for answers in other places, meaning like, like medical answers. So I started turning to using food as medicine. This is a pretty common theme in alternative medicine that food can heal all diseases or prevent diseases. I started to look at using herbs in place of pharmaceutical products. And I just developed this really strong belief that I didn't need medicine at all in order to prevent disease or to cure illness. Pretty dangerous place to be in, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It really led me down a uh, dark, scary rabbit hole for many years. And from there, was the, the route absolutely straight to enrolling at uh, Bastyr University? Because it's in the United States, right? Um, we're a European skeptics podcast. We don't know too much about about what's going on there. So how should we imagine what's going on at Bastyr? Right. So it's a little tricky. The way that the naturopathic system operates in North America, so Canada and the US, is, as you said, different than how it operates in the UK or in Europe in general. So, But there are similar aspects. I, I believe in the UK, you, be, you can become a, a naturopath by attending basically like a sort of like a trade school and you can go through schooling either online or in person and the programs vary in terms of how long they are and what type of information is covered in the program. Uh, Germany has a similar natural health profession that you know translate ba- basically to like natural health healer, healer. But in North America there has been a a very strong political movement by naturopaths to make naturopathy a legitimate health profession. And this has started with a process called accreditation of the naturopathic schools across all of North America. And so accreditation basically means that the programs, uh, you know, reach standards for organization and um, and different types of like structural things like you know there's a mission statement listed on the school or it's very clear how students are supposed to enroll in the program it doesn't mean that the quality of the education is uh, sort of reviewed or deemed by anyone who's an expert to to be a high quality education it's just more a matter of like how the program itself is structured But once a program is accredited, then the student who wants to enroll in that program has access to federal loan money to pay for the education, and 
students sort of misuse the definition of accreditation to suggest that the education is of high quality. And so what happens is, is you hear students saying, oh yeah, I attended a, an accredited naturopathic medical school. But the requirements for getting into the school, like Bastyr, the school that I went to, are very, very easy and not the same requirements for getting into medical school. And so it, it was a very straightforward process. I, um, I had to take just a few classes. I was able to take these prerequisites at Bastyr University itself, which uh, was a very like easy version of the course. So I took organic chemistry at Bastyr, for example, but there was no lab work and it was an incredibly easy class. I remember studying by the pool <laughs> while going through the course. And, um, and I didn't have to take any of those classic uh, enrollment exams, like the medical school enrollment test or a graduate school enrollment test. And so this is one example of how naturopaths sort of misuse or redefine language to in my opinion, confuse the public and manipulate lawmakers in order to legitimize the profession. Mm. Mm. Uh, but during your studies at Bastyr, did you study at least part of what uh, the the usual medical cur- curriculum uh, involves? Yeah, yeah, yes and no. <laughs> so in German, <laughs> I would say yein. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's tricky. So I don't actually have a very good sense of what medical students study and how tough it is, but I have a small sense of it. And and I'll say this. So I went through courses at best year called anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, embryology, uh, you know, what you would consider these, these basic science courses that are part of a standardized medical curriculum. And some of these classes were taught by professors who had PhDs in that subject. Mm-hmm. But many of the courses that I took were taught by licensed naturopaths who had sort of just declared themselves experts in the subject. And we used regular science textbooks for, again, for some of these classes, but other times we used textbooks written by naturopaths so that you know the information was very skewed uh, towards an alternative medicine perspective. When I started my Master of Science program here at the University of Kiel, I had to retake all of these same courses. Anatomy, embryology, mm-hmm. um, I had to you know show credit in physiology, I had to take a clinical cell biology course which was very similar to bio- biochemistry. And I immediately became aware of how dumbed down the courses were at Bastyr. So mm-hmm. I think in, in you know in hindsight I, I can now look at that information and be like you know yes I did take these courses but I think they were equivalent to just sort of like an introductory mm-hmm. course definitely not at a graduate level course because now I've taken that class at a graduate level and it was night in day. It was unbelievable how hard I had to work to get through some of these classes. Mm-hmm. And it was not medical school, it was biomedical science. Exactly, exactly. I, you know, we had a focus on clinical conditions in some of the classes because of this idea of translational medicine, you know, from bench to bedside. But we're not learning pathology in the same way that medical students were. And yet, you know, I had to learn so much more 
as a as a as a master of science student than I had to as a naturopathic student. That is shocking, really. This is like eye opening. I I didn't have any. Uh, would you go as far as to say that there was even an anti science attitude at Bustier? Yes, but it was disguised. So so naturopaths who are still drinking the Kool Aid that might be listening to this podcast are you know going to adamantly disagree with that statement because. In our clinical science classes, the teachers and the atmosphere sort of uh, is one that superficially suggests that we are looking at science and evidence. But what, what you don't understand when you're in this environment is that the quality of the studies that you're looking at are really low. They've never been reproduced you know you're not evaluating therapies with the gold standard randomized controlled trial design and as a naturopath you're making justifications to bend the bend the rules and to fudge the standards of how to interpret research all along the way because if you don't then you're not left with anything basically Mm -hmm. You, you know you have to sort of make up exceptions in order to like you know, justify to yourself why this one study on, I don't know, using golden seal instead of an antibiotic is a reasonable, is a reasonable choice. Mm. That's, I'm I'm, I'm actually shocked. (laughs) Well, no, we shouldn't be shocked because how else would they keep doing what they're doing um, and justifying that it works? So how did you, uh, can you tell us, I know it's probably a long story, uh, but could you tell us uh, sort of in few words, how did you transition from being a naturopath to becoming a skeptic? Yeah, the, 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 sh- the short version is my boss, who is a licensed naturopath in Arizona, was importing and administering a very sketchy, non-approved cancer drug and was giving this medication to patients. I had, under his medical orders, assisted in giving this medication to patients as well. And so when I found out that this drug was not approved by the FDA, and then after doing you know two minutes of Googling, <laughs> realizing that uh, by importing and then delivering this non-approved drug outside of a clinical trial setting, that this is actually a federal crime, I, I found myself in a very scary and uh, motivating position, meaning you know, I had an opportunity to do the right thing. And with the help of a lawyer who specialized in in medical malpractice and advising physicians on what to do in these types of situations, I was uh, guided to make the right decision, which was to report my boss to the naturopathic board and to the attorney general, to quit my practice, and to take a step back and look at what the profession that I was part of, to look at what they were doing as a whole. And simply put, my lawyer said, Britt, you know, this is, this is very simple. You're now on notice, which legally means now that you know that this person, your former boss, is doing something wrong, you are ethically and legally obligated to act. And so, you know, on a small scale, that meant to deal with, with my boss and to get out of that situation. But 
I extrapolated that to a larger scale and decided to look at the profession as a whole and to look at what naturopaths around the country or around North America really were doing and saying and and I just kept finding example after example after example of blatant disregard for uh, met, you know, ethical guidelines and professional guidelines and for misleading patients and charging patients lots of money for dubious therapies of all kinds. And I decided that I wouldn't be able to get up and look at myself every day and be part of this profession. Is your uh, former boss still practicing? Yes, he is still practicing. He was not, in my opinion, not adequately reprimanded by the the regulatory board in Arizona. Uh, and he's still considered to be one of the best naturopathic cancer specialists in the country. That sounds terrible. And uh, when you started speaking up against these issues, were there people trying to argue that what triggered your stepping out was basically an isolated incident and you shouldn't uh, throw everything away just because of that? How did that happen, that part of the, uh, that aspect of the whole thing? Absolutely. So I received probably hundreds of, of emails, <laughs> you know, with with those arguments. The first one being not all naturopaths, you know, oh, not yeah. all naturopaths practice how you do. And and then the second argument of, you know, you're being too hasty. You've sw- You've swung from one end of the spectrum to the other and you know don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. These were interesting arguments for me to consider and they they really made me pause and look at what I was doing. So the first one was no true Scotsman fallacy, you know, not all not all naturopaths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I keep coming back to for one for for this argument is okay, f- you know, you maybe you can find a naturopath who doesn't use homeopathy in his or her practice. Or maybe you can find a naturopath that says they only practice evidence-based medicine. But the problem is, is all naturopaths in an accredited naturopathic program are required to extensively study homeopathy, herbal medicine, energy healing, chiropractic techniques, water therapy, and just this never-ending list of bogus medical therapies. And at the end of the schooling, we have to take a licensing exam that, again, extensively tests our knowledge to, you know, to the level of where we can call ourselves experts in these subjects. And using these types of dubious practices that are, that are, have either been debunked totally like homeopathy or just not studied at all or have some level of evidence to suggest that they're uh, not safe you know they're so deeply permeated in who we become as naturopaths that it becomes in my opinion virtually impossible to start to tease apart what is real what is scientifically plausible what is based in evidence and what isn't. So even as a naturopath, if you are only recommending, let's say, um, diet information, 
a lot of the diet and health and food information that we're taught in naturopathic school is is not real information. Like we're taught how to interpret IgG allergy tests. Okay, well, there's no such thing as an IgG allergy. So <laughs> that's a problem right there. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we're taught that um, that you can have a whole set of food intolerances that uh, cause symptoms that are not related to eating that food or, you know, you just start to interpret things in this, in this framework that only makes sense in an alternative medicine context. And so you're going to find these naturopaths arguing that they don't fit my description of, of quackery. But if you go back and look at how they were trained and, um, how they earned the title of naturopathic doctor, there's no way around that they have had to become experts in pseudoscience in order to get there. Mm. Um, you mentioned hom- uh, naturopathic doctor. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's not 100% clear to me uh, whether you are, or you were back then, considered part of the medical profession, uh, a legitimate part of the medical profession by, by being a doctor, or uh, was it a separately a regulated mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. being a naturopathic, naturopathic doctor? It, it depends on where you are in North America. So depending upon the state in the U.S. or the province in Canada in which you are licensed. Mm-hmm. And let me just say, it's even more confusing than that because not all provinces or U.S. states license or regulate naturopaths. So it's um, it sort of depends on, on where you are. And even now, coming out of the, out of the profession, it's still, it's still complicated. I was considered part of the medical community, and I was considered a physician and a doctor in the states where I practice, which was Washington and Arizona. Mm-hmm. Now, whether I was really accepted with open arms in, you know, by the medical community there is, is sort of tricky because I only surrounded myself with people who believed that it was okay that as a naturopath, I, I was calling myself a doctor. But there were other... That, you know, there were there were aspects of my licensing that could sort of provide the illusion that I was fully part of the medical community. Like I was allowed to prescribe uh, pharmaceutical products. I had a DEA number for mid-level practitioners, and um, and I had a regulatory board to answer to. But the regulatory boards, at least in the states where I was licensed, are separate from the medical boards oh yeah exactly exactly so this is this is this is a key a key problem so i think with the exception of just one state in the u.s which is just a recent thing that passed in pennsylvania naturopaths are are not regulated by the same boards as medical doctors so basically like what they are allowed to do or how i look at at it what they're allowed to get away with (laughs) is is pretty um I mean, they're basically allowed to do whatever they want because there's no standard of care. And so you're not going to find a naturopathic regulatory board that's going to be like, oh, yeah, you, you know, you really shouldn't import this cancer medication that, you know, made by a guy who's being 
criminally investigated for fraud related to relabeling this product, you really shouldn't be bringing it into the country and giving it to your patients and charging them thousands of dollars. Hmm. You don't you don't find boards saying, no, you can't do that because the, the definition of, of naturopathy is so broad. Like we said in the beginning, it's basically boundaryless that you can get away with anything. Wow. So when you were part of this culture and sort of this naturopath uh, kind of system. Have you had any doubts, like, the, the, you know, skeptical doubts, or does it actually work? Or did you have step out of it and sort of see it from the side and go, yes, that, I can totally see it clearly now, it doesn't work? Um, you know, for a long time, my answer to that question was, no, I didn't have any doubts. And that I had to step out of it to look at it critically. Yeah. But but it's more nuanced than that. So there's this pervasive culture of patient blaming within naturopathy where when something doesn't work for the patient, when the patient isn't experiencing you know, all of the positive effects and zero side effects that is promised with the therapy, it's never it's never because the therapy doesn't work. It's because the patient didn't do something right. And so, again, homeopathy is a classic example for this. You know, if a patient mm. isn't getting better with homeopathy, there are a, there's a very long list of reasons as to why this might be from, well, did you brush your teeth that day that you took the homeopathic remedy? And the patient will say, yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, well, mint and menthol can deactivate a homeopathic remedy. So you probably brushed your teeth too close to taking this remedy and you have neutralized it. <laughs> Wow. Yep. A caffeine is another substance that's supposed to neutralize homeopathy. Uh, there's a long list of... Microwaves. <laughs> microwaves, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, we... You know, and then, and then let's say the patient avoided, you know, this long list of foods and products. So then the next, the, you know, the next explanation is, well, you know, our symptoms can be layered. And we, our body sets up all of these defense systems and we have... Um, these layers of symptoms. And so while maybe we didn't get to the root cause of your illness with this homeopathic remedy, we've, we've unpeeled, we've peeled off one layer. So it's not that we did gave you the wrong remedy. It's not that the remedy didn't work. It's just now we're ready to move to a deeper level of treatment. Mm -hmm. And this can go on and on and on and on and you can come up with you know this way of explaining away mm. why something isn't working as long as it's the patient's fault for any natural therapy for any naturopathic therapy yeah, yeah. and so while i was in it you, you know i was i was getting naturopathic treatments i mean just hundreds of dollars of naturopathic treatments a month. And I was just like fully, fully, fully immersed. I've, you name it, I have done it. And it wasn't working. And I was becoming more and more miserable and more and more actually sick, emotionally sick and uh, just like physically ill because I was now, you know, underfed or, and, you know, taking just a long list of products that were having all sorts of who knows what effects or probably even no effects at all. And it was all my fault that it wasn't working. And it was all being explained with, oh, you feel worse? Well, now you're having a healing crisis. I mean, there's, there's literally an explanation for everything. Oh, yeah. I, 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 hate, I hate this statement because my 
one of my friends is is very much a, a, a opponent of of naturopathy, and every time he's got a cold or like something, he says, "Oh, I'm having a healing. It's a good thing that mm-hmm. this thing is happening to my body because it's a." And I'm just like, well, "How?" I know. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so I didn't. I didn't really. I wasn't looking at things skeptically. It was all my fault. Mm-hmm. And then as the doctor, it was the patient's fault. As long as you're in your mindset that you're only as healthy as you want to be, right? Which is something that naturopaths say all the time. Like, you know, health is whatever you want it to be. It's just a matter of how much you're willing to invest in it. As long as that's sort of the context on which everything else is being applied and operated under, then there's no reason to to critically evaluate what you're doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, I had this other question: whether you have seen on your journey uh, this shift to the, in the right direction in the ho- field of homeo- uh, naturopathy. But actually, by the sounds of it, if anything, it's it's pretty toxic and it's getting worse. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you called it toxic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, I don't have a strong sense of the profession's response to my writing you know on the one hand I know that naturopaths hate me and I know that there has been a strong pushback against naturopaths who or by naturopaths who are licensed and already in in business selling and offering a lot of the therapies that I that I discuss and call pseudoscience on my blog and that seems normal to me because they feel like I am threatening their their livelihood I'm, th- mm-hmm. I'm threatening their business so I understand that I understand that response I have been told and I do receive a huge number of emails from students in naturopathic school and I don't have a very uh, you know strong assessment of what's happening but what I'm being told is that my blog is very influential for uh, prospective students and people who are currently studying naturopathy and are not yet making money off of it. Mm. And um, and many students that have written to me have told me that they've either decided to not attend naturopathic school either at all or after getting accepted. And a number of students mm-hmm. have also dropped out of naturopathic school. Mm. That's good. It's great. It's, amazing, it's great. Yeah. And so I think. I think getting information to people before they are sort of financially stuck mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the profession is key. Very good point, yeah. yeah you did mention in your talk that uh, that it was a very tough decision for you financially as well. Yeah. That you invested a huge amount of money into this that that is just potentially lost. So uh, how are you coping with that? I'm ignoring it. (laughs) I I mean, not literally, but you know, it's, um, it's very, very difficult. So I spent in total $220,000. Wow. Yeah. Just on the naturopathic degree. You know, I had a little bit of student loans from my undergraduate degree as well, but just on the naturopathic degree, living costs and 
and schooling all in 220,000. And that's basically money down the drain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so since then, I graduated in 2011. I'm up to $300,000 in student loans with compounded interest right now. Is there a way out in terms of just, uh, you know, doing the bankruptcy thing? I know that some people... I don't know. I'm not an expert, but it seems so unfair that you have to repay this money to for a, for a naturopathic degree. Yeah. And I wonder if there is any way around it. That's a really good question, actually, because one thing that accreditation of the naturopathic schools allows is for students to borrow massive amounts of money like I did yeah. from, you know, yeah. from the federal government. Wow. The problem is, first, that the naturopathic schools needed accreditation of their programs in order to stay in business. You know, they are financially dependent upon uh, federal student loan money from their students in order to keep their doors open. So th- that's, that's interesting. The other piece of it is that you cannot claim bankruptcy for student, federal student loan debt. Now, before there was accreditation, tuition costs were quite high, not as high as they are now, but they were still quite high. And students were borrowing, were, were taking out private student loans from banks to pay for their education. And what started happening is that, you know, after, you know, they would graduate, these students would have like a hundred or $120,000 in private student loan debt, and they would immediately claim bankruptcy and have all of the private student loan debt wiped away. And after seven years, you know, their credit, they could start rebuilding their credit in the U.S. again. And, you know, it was like it never happened. And for those students, and I agree, you know, having crummy credit for seven years is a a great trade-off for just magically making $120,000 of debt disappear. Yeah. So... After that started happening on a regular basis, banks started prohibiting lending student loan money to naturopathic students. So then it became just really imperative that the schools get accreditation and that the students have access to these federal student loan dollars in order for the whole thing to keep going. Hmm. So to answer your question, I I can't claim bankruptcy because it's a federal student loan. Um, Several naturopaths have tried to bring lawsuits against the schools unsuccessfully. I I haven't been directly involved in in any of these lawsuits, but they all contact me, you know, in hopes that I can somehow provide testimony or support them. From what I understand, just from talking to these naturopaths who have tried to sue the schools and and the lawyers, is that you have to prove that there was false advertising by the, by the schools in terms of what you can do with the degree and um, what your income looks like. Mm-hmm. It gets even trickier because since I've started writing, the schools, particularly Bastyr, where I went, have changed the language on their websites. So some of... Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the critiques that I made in my early posts, you know, they had statements saying like, Bastyr is a four-year accredited medical school. Well, it's not a medical school. It's a naturopathic school, you know, and that's an important distinction. And so Bastyr has now, it seems like, you know, paid attention to these critiques and changed changed the language. Mm-hmm. But uh, you mentioned a few people approaching you for advice or testimonials. Uh, 
Does that mean that uh, your activities triggered others to follow your example? Yes, but they have followed very quietly. Mm-hmm. They're not willing to, you know, come out publicly. And some have written for my blog, but they've done so only anonymously. And and many people just want to write to me and say, thank you. you know, I, I can't do what you're doing. Please don't share my name or my email. But I have been thinking all of this and more and it's just so refreshing and it feels so good to have someone like you say it out loud is it is it because of uh them not being very vocal and not not seeking that kind of uh, limelight or or it's more about their fear from potential retributions from the profession i think it's the latter i was terrified of starting my blog just to put it into context just terrified 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 And after my first post or two went up, I don't think I slept for weeks. Oof. And then the amount of hate mail that came was just was overwhelming. It got to the point where I had to I had to take my email address off of my smartphone and sort of unplug from it and only check it after sort of emotionally preparing myself for the responses that would be in that inbox waiting for me. And the amount of grief that came with the experience was just, was incredible. And I, and I knew it would be hard, but I wasn't prepared to just feel, for feeling, I just felt devastated, I think. Because intermixed with hate mail from naturopaths that I had never met before were many emails from my friends in the community who were telling me that they felt like I was a traitor, like I had betrayed them. And I had gone about this whole process unprofessionally and by calling naturopaths charlatans, I'm calling them a charlatan. And you know, by sort of shedding a light on all of this unethical business practices in the profession, I am also, you know, I'm threatening their livelihood and Mm -hmm. potentially taking food away from their children and money out of their pocketbooks. That was devastating. That was really hard to, and it still is really hard to, to know that my writing is potentially inhibiting or, you know, shutting down or taking away from the practice of people that mm. I love. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I can't get behind taking advantage of patients. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally understandable. And you know this um, emotional struggle that you talk about now, it was really apparent. It was really something that came across perfectly during your talk at QED and this is why I I still remember it as the most moving talk during QED and I was not not alone with that sentiment because uh at the end of your talk there was a standing ovation mm-hmm. and I I felt I felt like it's it's the right thing to do it's and it was very clear that when you started uh writing the blog and uh even though you were afraid you were scared you you did follow through and it deserves every kind of respect so 
yeah, I just it's not a question. <laughs> but I just I just wanted to tell you that. Thank you. Yeah, so I think I think we all we all had in the room everyone had this feeling that oh my god, what this woman has gone through is just absolutely impossible to grasp for anyone who's who's not went through the the the, the same thing. Because because lots of us started out as skeptics, or, or or we've we've been skeptics as long as we can remember. Yeah, we we are we're used to criticism. That's that's <laughs> that's a normal way for for skeptics. But talking about your blog, I think it's uh, one of the best structured things out there. Because you you divided it to separate sections, like there is a patient guide, a student guide, a legislation guide. Um, so you you basically provide a handbook to naturopathy how to how to approach it. How did you come up with that structure? Mm-hmm. It developed, I think, organically based on the types of emails and questions I was receiving from people who were reading the blog and mm-hmm. and I was able to sort of separate the readers into three groups you know, people who were interested in pursuing naturopathic therapies as a patient so lots of questions about what do you think of using this therapy for this disease and then a ton of questions from students and prospective students of you know, all sorts of questions that I thought that I had clearly answered or that I thought were clearly or easily available on the blog. Like, is there anything valuable in a naturopathic education? Do you, do you recommend going to naturopathic school? How much does school cost? You know, I'm afraid of conventional medicine, but I really think my calling is in healthcare. What do you think I should do? So, I wanted to be able to make that information as easily accessible for students as possible because I don't want any other student to make the same mistake I did, which is to go into the naturopathic profession thinking that you are receiving a legitimate medical education. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think just sort of naturally, people were gravitating to the blog uh, as a way to fight uh, naturopathic legislation, so to fight bills that would license or register naturopaths and bills that would give naturopaths a scope of practice that looked like a primary care physician's. So I started to get emails from you know people who all sorts of people who were involved in legislation one way or another. So I decided, you know, illuminating what the practice and the education of naturopaths look like. Uh, and what naturopaths are doing once they are licensed, you know, how they are uh, providing care to patients and what they're calling medicine from a lawmaker's perspective would be incredibly useful. And uh, it's really great feedback to hear that you think it's, it's structured so well because I have, I've put a lot, of, a lot of time and thought into how to make the blog user-friendly. Mm-hmm. It really, it really is. <laughs> Have you teamed up with German skeptics uh, since you now uh, live in Germany? Um, and have you had any sort of dealings and cooperation with the GUP? Not really. I mean, there's a lot of mm. of online interaction because because of Twitter, basically. Um, but I haven't 
I'm not involved in anything politically or any any German activism. Uh, for me, a barrier is is the language barrier. I, I definitely uh, my German is not very good, and I don't feel comfortable speaking German to to make this type of nuanced argument. It's it's to try to explain uh, not only what naturopathy is. I mean. Explaining naturopathy and what it consists of is hard enough in English, let alone, yeah. <laughs> let alone in another language, you know, in a whole different type of healthcare system. And the system is not confusing in Germany, but, it, you know, it just has a very different set of, of rules. Like homeopathic care is frequently covered by German health insurance companies. So it's just, it's a whole different set of, of things to tackle. But uh, the GWP? Uh, are you familiar with their works or are you in contact with them at all? No, I'm familiar with a few members, again, through mm -hmm. um, I've met some on Twitter and uh, at QED and at the Skeptics Congress last year. But my participation is very, mm -hmm. very, very limited. But should they be interested in um, inviting you to, to give a talk somewhere in the vicinity certainly in English. Would you be up for that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think um, I've even had this conversation uh, with members of the group in the past. And I think it's just a matter of finding the right venue and the opportunity for me to talk in English. Okay. So I'm just winking at our uh, German listeners because we have we have a few. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if you if you want a great talk um, to be given to your audience, uh, just don't hesitate to contact uh, Brit Hermes. Do you try to follow what's going on in terms of the state of naturopathy here in Europe compared to that in the US? On a very limited basis. So one on the one hand, there is uh, the language barrier. So a lot of what I pay attention to is in the UK and mm -hmm. in Ireland because that, you know the news is much easier to follow and I do have a desire to make my blog as internationally relevant as possible so I'm not just paying attention to what's happening over here on this side of the uh, you know the ponds but also what's happening in Australia and New Zealand as well mm -hmm. because naturopathy is a internationally pervasive problem And, you know, what, you know, the problems with how naturopaths are practicing in the U.S. are the same with how they're practicing in Europe and, and in Australia. So I think there's something, you know, for me to critique that's relevant to people around the world. But there have been, like, I've had a journalist uh, inquiry from, a journalist from the Netherlands who, you know, wanted my opinion on some naturopathic practices that were happening there. And, you know, I have been covered and made myself available to uh, issues that come up with alternative medicine around Europe as it's, as it's relevant and as I can, you know, communicate easily with, with the journalist who is, is asking for my opinion. Mm-hmm. That's great, and that 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 seems like an interesting thing to do in terms of especially for us trying to connect uh, European skeptics. You know, one thing that's really become relevant or important to me is, you know, being part of the worldwide community. 
mm-hmm. of skeptics and yeah. and doing what I can, you know, as globally as possible from this from this broad public health perspective to help protect patients all over the world. Yeah. One of the things that we would like to uh, push for um, in terms of European skepticism is uh, trying to become a lobbying body as well mm. uh, to push for legislation, uh, European level legislation. We are very, very far from that. We mm-hmm. we haven't even started. There are a few organizations that, that, that try to do something like that, but uh, still a lot to do. These pieces of information, uh, everything that that comes with uh, all your experience and what you write about that will prove very very useful uh when it comes to that too great it's good to know that you're thinking of this already because at least in north america i find it's just it's critical that from our perspective that we are proactive with legislation because once legislation has passed that provides any sort of legitimacy to naturopaths or alternative practitioners it's very hard to repeal those laws and to repeal what's already been done yeah but you must be familiar with with what's going what's going on in terms of homeopathy in the uk for example yeah yeah so that shows that is a great example of the fact that it can be reversed to some extent at least yeah absolutely but it takes a lot it takes a lot of effort i was i was just gonna say with an incredible amount of work though i mean the workload was just enormous it is it is so what's next for you uh, you're conducting studies. What's the goal with that? What's the goal? That's a good question. So uh, I'm, I'm in the final stretches of my, my master's. I'm doing my thesis project on the mammalian microbiome. And then we have a little bit more time in Kiel while my husband finishes his PhD in archaeology. We are hoping to stay in Europe uh, for him to continue his studies with a postdoc. And mm. I am thinking about how to combine my my passion for continuing to write about my experiences as a naturopath and my advocacy for science and evidence-based medicine with perhaps a PhD. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are a lot of different avenues that I can go through, and I'm just trying to... Um, make a practical decision, I guess. Uh, and that's because I'm, you know, I'm so far. <laughs> I have so much financial debt and I'm a bit older than the average student. So it's, it's, it's taking some careful consideration. But I think I'll end up going into hopefully some, you know, either epidemiology, public health or ethics and can hopefully continue to be a very active voice uh, in the community continuing to push for um for legislation that protects patients from alternative practitioners mm-hmm. yeah amazing mm-hmm. yeah and we appreciate your voice very much thank um, you indeed where can people find out more about your works mm-hmm. so you can find everything about me at naturopathicdiaries.com there's a contact page there where you can get in touch with me and and that's where all my blog posts go up I also, on occasion, contribute to Science 2.0, Science-Based Medicine, and Forbes in the Health and Medicine section. Great. I think that wraps up our interview with uh, Brit Hermes. Brit, thank you very much for, for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. And uh, hope to see you again, either 
in Rotslav at the European Skeptics Congress or at QED or both? Who knows? All of the above, probably. <laughs> All the best with your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Oh, wow. It's an inspirational story. Indeed, yeah. I just loved it. Well, yeah. obviously it was the story that needs to be spread. And I really feel for those who are not strong enough to leave this circle, to say that, okay, I can see now that it's it's not necessarily what it it promises to be, but they're not strong enough to leave it. Or... Because of that, they convince themselves that it's not as bad as they think. I think that's very common. It's very hard to convince yourself that what what, yeah. what you're doing is, is you know not working, and because you yeah. see, you have anecdotal evidence that it, people seem to be happy. Blah blah blah. Yeah, you don't want to give it up. Yeah, I guess it's it's about uh, different strategies of coping with uh, cognitive dissonance. Mm. Yeah. Great to to hear uh, such an inspirational story. Kind of makes me feel like when we had the interview with uh, Natalie Grams. Mm. Yeah, very some, similar. Some some similarities. Yeah. Well, great, and it was very nice meeting her as well at QED. Mm, absolutely. All right. Uh, before we go, I have a very important announcement to make. Uh, as we discussed earlier on an earlier episode, uh, we would like to hear from our listeners uh, regarding the show, regarding the structure of the show and uh, how we should go on with it in the future. And this is why we put to, we've put together a short questionnaire that we're going to sh- uh, share on our Facebook page, our Twitter uh, account, and indeed on our website as well. So if, you, if you're willing to spend about five minutes answering those questions uh, in the questionnaire, that would help us a great deal. Uh, so please do so. If, if you're listening to the show... Uh, it would mean us a lot, not only because it gives us feedback, but because potentially there is the possibility of uh, of the show becoming better uh, and uh, serving your needs more and better um, in the future. All right, then I think this concludes our show. This has been the 50th episode mm. and uh, we are marching on. We're, we're not going to stop. All right, so thanks very much for joining me again. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you. And until next week, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Rob and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe
Massimo Polodoro. Polodori. Yeah, Massimo po- Polodoro. <laughs> Sorry. Be there. Yeah. I love the way you're saying it. <laughs> Massimo. And I will round up this fucking week. <laughs> busy this week. Fucking busy. I was going to say busy. something clever. Okay. Yeah. Edinburgh skeptics underground. Why are they underground? Because they're hiding. Who are they hiding from? Donald Trump. Trump, yeah. Donald Trump, yeah. And you can reach us at... <laughs> well, different ways, really. Um, you can email us. Our email address is info at podcast underscore... <laughs> info at podcast under what? Underground. Uh... <laughs> you can reach us underground, yeah. 